This podcast series is not meant for retail investors, but instead is meant for financial advice and investment professionals. Please refer to IMAP's website, imap.asn.au, for more details. All right, welcome to this podcast in the IMAP Independent Thought Series. Joining me today to discuss interest rates and portfolio construction, I have Lucas Depaulbe, who is a Executive Director and CIO of Lonsec Investment Solutions, and Hamish Fitzsimons, who is a Portfolio Manager with Alliance Bernstein. Welcome, gentlemen. Now, uh, you know, I think we're all aware of the current environment, high inflation, rising interest rates. We've seen the Fed put rates up and suggest that it's going to continue to do so in perhaps a quite an aggressive way. We've got 5% plus inflation locally and the RBA started rate hikes. So it's certainly front and center of a lot of people's minds. Perhaps Lucas, if we can start with you, just wanted to ask you, how is Lonsec looking at asset allocation in this environment? And how are you positioning portfolios at the moment? Yeah, look, the current environment, it, it certainly uh, is keeping us focused in terms of uh, asset allocation. Um, I think the, the, the way we've sort of uh, uh, tended to sort of address this type of issue at the, this stage is, um, and, and maybe it's worthwhile just recapping, I guess, where we've come from, from in terms of asset allocation because it'll give you a bit of a sense of what we're doing. So um, we've been uh, for some time overweight, um, growth assets, so equities and so forth, uh, underweight fixed income and cash. Um, and look, that that positioning has worked really well for the last um, several years, uh, as we've seen equity markets um, obviously uh, do do very well, fueled by lower interest rates, uh, fueled by um, central bank uh, support in the form of QE. All of those things have really been positive for risk assets. Now, as we've seen interest rates, um, uh, the prospect of, of interest rates going up, and then we have subsequently seen that go up, and also in the inflationary pressures. Um, for the last sort of six months, effectively, we've been tapering some of our um, equity exposure uh, and really sort of where we've been um, more towards a neutral position, um, but where we have been allocating more assets uh, from an asset allocation perspective in things like real assets, uh, so things like listed infrastructure uh, and, and property. Um, we have continued to be underweight fixed income, um, uh, albeit where we are at the moment is with uh, bond yields going up, um, you know, fixed income is starting actually to pay something um, where, you know, we've been at pretty much zero for many years. So, we're not there yet, but but we are looking at some of those fixed income assets. Um, I think where I guess the main sort of thing is we think a lot of the action is is going to be from a bottom up perspective. So from an asset allocation perspective, I think the easy money's been made. Um, we've probably been more heading towards a more neutral allocation and more focused from a bottom up perspective is where do you have some of those tilts? So for example, you know within fixed income having more floating rate exposure, um, as an example, um, and in a rising interest rate environment, that should hold up well. Um, having a look at things like inflation-linked bonds, for example, uh, and then within some of the other asset classes, things like commodities. So it's probably fair to say the asset allocation causes, it's been, it's been difficult, but 
I think it's sort of the shift is now really more from that sub-asset class perspective and a bottom-up perspective, and that's where we've been focused. Thanks, Lucas. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a, there's a lot we can draw out of that when you talk about some of the specifics you mentioned. And maybe just initially as well, Hamish, uh, you know, Lucas mentioned that they'd been overweight equities for quite a long time. And I think most people had seen the benefits of, of growth in the low interest rate environment. So as an equity portfolio manager, what's your view on the broader equity markets at the moment? Do you have a, a sure. positive outlook? Look, I, I think it's hard to have a broadly positive outlook. I would sort of second Lucas's point around there's a lot of bottom-up that's going to go on here in that the, the environment we're in is going to create quite stark winners and losers, you know, rising inflation, rising input costs, rising interest rates. They're very negative for some companies, but for other companies are extremely positive. So I think you've got to re be really careful to differentiate between the two and just buying everything is is not the right answer at this point in time. Um, I mean, just and look, I, I just want to make the general overall point in that if you, if you go back through the major things that have made the stock market go down in the last sort of eighty years, if you choose the the things that have made the stock market go down more than twenty percent, you know, since nineteen forty, inflation is the worst. Right, inflation outbreaks in nineteen seventy four, nineteen eighty two, and nineteen ninety five. The average pullback of the market was close to 40%. That's worse than wars. That's worse than asset bubbles. I mean, having said that, we're having wars right now. And, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of the bad things, a lot of the things that cause markets to go really badly are, are happening simultaneously. But I just wanted to point out that inflation is very bad. So I think the general theory of just being in equity broadly is, is, a, is a tough one. But I would differentiate within that and just to call out a couple of examples. I mean, if you're in supermarkets right now, and I'll pick an individual stock and say Coles, their margin is, you know, through the whole of COVID with sales up, sales down, costs up, costs down, online up, online down, has been 4%, plus or minus 0.05%. Their ability to control their margin is fantastic. So input price inflation for them is just more sales because they will just maintain a 4% margin increase the sales price that the consumer is going to kind of see yeah, right. and continue to grow their profit. So whereas there's other people who their input prices go up and they they don't have the ability to pass it on to customers and it just crunches their margin. So, you know, we, another example, you know, APA pipelines, they, they have inflation explicitly built into the revenue of their, of their contracts. So if inflation goes up, their customers pay them more money. So they actually once again benefit from inflation. And, you know, another sort of so, – so I just think you've got to be really careful about picking those ones who have, have thought about inflation or have the ability to deal with inflation and those who, who don't. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, you, you mentioned there, Hamish, it's interesting. You know, you talked about times that equities have fallen by more than 20% and that, you know, yeah. inflation is one of the risks there. And I guess yeah. maybe more a question for Lucas, but U.S. markets – more or less achieved that year to date, that 20% fall, um, less so here in Australia. But does that change your, your outlook? You know, are we getting to a stage where you would reconsider equities or you still have a, a reasonably negative outlook? Yeah, one, one of the things, I mean, we do look at is obviously valuations. Um, and we, we recently just re-ran our models to sort of look at, you know, post the most recent pullback. And, and interestingly, even though we've had that, pullback, um, you know, we, we probably wouldn't be in the camp where um, US equities necessarily look cheap as yet. 
Um, probably the, the, the one asset class that is sort of stands out, I guess, uh, in that sort of cheaper territory are emerging markets. But we all know some of the challenges, um, uh, particularly China, um, with, with their sort of uh, heavy-handed sort of COVID policy lockdowns and so forth. Like, there's some real sort of issues in, in that market at the moment. So despite it being cheap, we haven't been allocating more to emerging markets. But in terms of US equities, yes, we've had a pullback. But, you know, we, we're still not seeing, you know, and the same with Aussie equities, we're not sort of seeing the, the broader sectors necessarily in cheap um, uh, 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 territory. And I think the interesting thing will be to see what happens to PEs more generally and, um Usually, in, in sort of inflationary environments, you, you do see a bit of a re-rating um, in terms of what the sort of uh, longer t- t- PEs look like, and so you might see a bit more pressure coming down on PEs. But look, we, we certainly don't think we're there in terms of, uh, I guess, upweighting growth assets um, uh, at this stage. Um, I think the market is still sort of uh, look. The next six months, in our view, is just going to be a bit of a, the market trying to find itself. Um, there'll be a lot more volatility. You know, one of one of the plausible things we may see is we may see rates um, go up, um, you know, over the, over the sort of six months, but then plateau out um, and potentially even reverse. So there's a lot of moving parts. So I guess with that in mind, we've sort of said let's sort of neutralise some of our allocations over the next six months. Let's really focus on that bottom up um, uh, angle uh, because. Uh, yeah, I think I think what we've seen at the moment, you know, you've seen a couple of dead cat bounces as well in terms of the market in the US. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I think the next six months is just going to be more volatility rather than sort of, you know, this, it, it's not going to be, in, in, in my mind, I don't think it's going to be like this V-shaped recovery that we saw um, when we had that COVID, uh, the COVID sort of bounce a couple of years ago. Right, right. Okay. And that, I, just within that, I suppose, in terms of managers looking at, at managers and, and allocating to managers, are you looking for a, a value tilt? Are you, you staying away from from the high growth managers still in in this environment? Yeah, look, uh, I think it's it's an interesting one. So, well, I mean, one of the things we do look at is uh, what are the different factor exposures within our portfolio. So, you know, your value, your growth, your quality, all those sort of things, and. Uh, you know, and certainly when we sort of saw that rotation, we had another good look at, you know, are we overexposed to any single factor, particularly growth and, you know, the growth factor. And so, look, our portfolios have been fairly balanced. I mean, we we, we have had um, exposure to some really contrarian value managers for some time. And, and, you know, that's sort of been a drag on the portfolio. But now, you know, they've made it back in spades in um, <laughs> in recent months. So, yeah. Um, I, I'd probably be cautious about just sort of flipping from one style, you know, to, to you know, totally to another style. Because even on the growth side, um, you know, a lot of those, you've got a lot of quality companies. Um, there's nothing wrong with a lot of those companies. So necessarily crystallizing uh, the losses um, is probably not a, not a prudent thing. Um, the interesting thing is value. Value tends to... It's very much a long-term factor, um, as we've seen. You, you, you can be under underwater for for a long, long time, and then you get it all back in a very short period of time. Um, so, yes, we do have some value. Have we been massively tilting towards value? Um, no, 
but we have been very sort of uh, prudent in terms of understanding what our factor exposure is. But it's probably fair to say we've been fairly diversified um, over time. And, and look, we know that there's different parts of the portfolio going to work in different cycles. So we're not necessarily trying to time, you know, now's value, now's growth or whichever. Side. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I could just comment on that, I think having been in equities funds management for a while, I've been in a number of conversations with people over the years which say, what what is value? And you know, is it price earnings? Is it price book? Is it price to free cash flow? Is, is it a variety of other things? So I, th- I think, and, and I think what our analysis would sort of show within that is is that in, at, at, in pullbacks, the type the type of value that you want is price to free cash flow. Cash is what matters when the markets are going down. Price to book mm. is not necessarily a helpful factor when when markets are going down. So I think you've got to be careful when you're talking about value and what type of value do do you mean? Yeah, and I, I guess from your earlier comments, Hamish, it's you know you're looking for companies and sectors where there's inflation protection as an important yeah. factor. That's right, and and when we when we look at that, I mean, there's there's a couple of sort of sectors I'd call out broadly. Um, I mean, gold is an interesting one. I think in the middle ground of inflation, gold can do poorly or badly, um, poorly or well. But when inflation gets extreme, gold does well. So it's like a tail, a tail hedge. So you don't want to have a, your whole portfolio in gold, but you want to think about it as a tail risk hedge. Um, some of the healthcare companies, in particular, have extremely strong pricing power and um, dominant market positions. Demand is not going to go down for their products, particularly, so they can. That they're not going to be affected too dramatically by by what's going on. Uh, in fact, some of them will benefit from the the research. You know, a lot of them are struggling. Um, for example, you know, ResMed, who make the sleep apnea devices, are struggling to get chips right now because the consumers hot. They're all going to iPhones, all this stuff. So some of that stuff's going to free up and actually help mm-hmm. help them on the other side of things. Um, and, you know, they could sell every pro- they can sell every product they make for whatever price they want right now. They just can't make enough, right? And that's not going to really change. But they'll be able to make more in the future. Um, insurance companies, uh, I think, uh, yeah, high rates help insurance companies. If you, if you can price, if you can price for the inflation, which a lot of the Australians can, and globally, insurance markets are very strong for price. You know, because they invest a lot of their money in fixed income, which, which used to be a tough thing to do, whereas now you're getting a decent yield, so that's helping returns on insurance. The infrastructure we talked about, some of them have infl- explicit inflation links, and the consumer staples we talked about. So there's a, Within you know, there's some in, in each of those categories that aren't going to work, but within those categories are the ones who are more likely to win in different inflation situations. I think just yeah. the interesting one on the inflation um, argument at the moment is it, it is you know it's still a lot, a lot of it is still supply side driven. Uh, mm. I mean, you know, and so one of the one of the questions we've been asking ourselves is you know, okay, you can raise interest rates, but how effective will that be? Um, mm-hmm. when, when yeah. you know, a yeah. lot of the pressures are due to, you know, it, you know, I mean, the transitory argument sort of, you know, that's the no-no at the moment. Like that's sort of mm-hmm. uh, not the, the, the main narrative. But the reality is, you know, you've got um, shipping containers stuck on the on, on the on, on the coast um, in China. You know, good. You know, that that's still driving a lot of the inflationary pressures combined with the conflict in in in, in Ukraine, where we've seen, um, you know some of the commodity prices, you know, wheat, sunflower oil, all of these things um, ramp up in price. So it's an interesting one. And so that I think that's the sort of conundrum for the central banks at the moment is, mm-hmm. you know, you've got a very blunt tool 
um, in terms of interest rates. And then the other one is obviously tapering, quantitative tapering. But yeah, uh, yeah. to what degree that, you know, that, that will be effective, it's still the jury's out. And the other thing is, I mean, it's that careful sort of balancing act between sort of hosing down inflation and then, um, you know, killing growth. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, the world Absolutely. is basically indebted. Yeah. I mean, as you said, Lucas, you know, putting rates up 50, 100 basis points isn't going to solve the chip shortage or the, no. <laughs> bring the wheat back out of, of Ukraine at the moment, etc. So I did read the article yesterday where someone pointed out that the the US Fed has engineered a soft landing two out of the last 10 times. So let's not be too optimistic <laughs> about their ability to time this right. You know, and, it's, it's, and, it's, and I think we've seen that in the last six to eight weeks in that a lot of the major research houses like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley have started to be much more strident about the fact that FY23 or calendar 23 is most likely a recession for the US. Like the probabilities have been going up quite, quite, quite dramatically. Yeah. Um, so no one's saying 100%, but they're sort of getting to more likely than not territory. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, just move on. Lucas, you mentioned commodities earlier. I know it is something that you saw as interesting. And Hamish has mentioned gold. Just um, wondered how you're seeing that area. Are you allocating to commodities at the moment? I mean, yeah. obviously a lot of the, the bulks and the oil have gone up a lot already have yeah so probably there's there's probably two sort of main angles we've been allocating so so one i mean structurally obviously the aussie market compared to say the us market is you know we're very sort of resource materials heavy so structurally i guess aussie equities do provide you some exposure to those parts of the markets uh, but outside of that um we have had an allocation to gold for for, for a long time um, and that allocation has, uh, I guess, been there two, two prongs. One has been um, that sort of flight to safety argument. Um, so, you know, whenever we've had that sort of real sell-off, gold tends to, you know, tended to sort of been that sort of safe harbour. Um, but the second one, which when we allocated a few years ago, was this sort of prospect of inflation and, and you know, that at some stage the other side of QE, you know, as we see that coming off, that, that, that there's going to be sort of potentially issues there. Um, so um, probably gold has been our main exposure um, in terms of that sort of uh, commodities. So, so Aussie equities uh, uh, and gold have probably been the two main ways um, right. we've accessed it. The other right. sort of peripheral ways we've accessed it is to buy some of the alternative managers that have some exposure to some of the other commodities um but that's been our main main exposure okay and um you also mentioned real assets property infrastructure and so on and i know hamish has talked about infrastructure within the equity context is that the sectors that you still see as as doing well in this environment with inflation particularly yeah, look, I mean, I think from a capital perspective, and, and our main exposure has been via the listed market because that's sort of the universe we, we play in. I mean, as um, Hamish sort of mentioned, some of those infrastructure assets do have um, CPI-linked uh, sort of uh, income streams uh, attached to them. So that they can provide from an income perspective some, some certainly some, some levels of protection. Um, but at the same time, look, if you get... Um, you know, they are also sensitive to interest rates. So mm. you can see this sort of from a capital perspective, you know, mm. 
we saw that inflation really kick up, then, you know, you could get a bit of downside. We're probably at our sort of high max exposure uh, in terms of that. And um, while it still sort of shows us up as being an attractive on our models, we, we probably wouldn't be at to looking to further increase that. We're already sort of overweight those assets. Okay. I guess the, the bit left field, maybe the one asset class we haven't mentioned, um, which has got a lot of attention in the last year or so, and certainly I think advisors get a lot of questions about is, is crypto. Is that something you either of you have, have considered? Do you think it's a real asset class? Or Look, we've, we've looked at it uh, close simply because a lot of advisors do ask about it. So we've done a bit of work and um, I guess where we've done a bit of the work is to look at what are the characteristics of crypto. Um, you know, so look, based on historical da data, it does have some, and, and when I say crypto, I'm talking about the main, like Bitcoin, for example. So um, yeah. it does exhibit some interesting characteristics, um, the this sort of uh, idiosyncratic risk profile that it sort of does bring um to a portfolio, um, you know, it does show a sort of asymmetric return profile. But look, it's very volatile. So, you know, we certainly be, wouldn't be looking to allocate to crypto sort of um, uh, anytime soon. But it is a look, it's an emerging area. And I think from our perspective, you, you've at least got to be aware of it and un try to understand it um, uh, because, it, you know, where it ends up. We don't know, but it does have some interesting characteristics. So, and the yeah. risk sell off is is probably a good thing, right? Because it, like anything, it cleans sure. out a lot of the uh, uh, one, a lot of the hot money, uh, and two, sort of a lot of the sort of you know coins that probably have got no future. Uh, but it's still too early in our mind. Um, but again, as as the world is looking for you know diversifying assets and so forth, that's you've at least got to have a look. Yeah, I guess it hasn't really played that diversifying role in the last few months, as you said, no, has it? Uh, that's the other thing is like there's no, you know, the market's been interesting in that and, and it'd be interesting in Hamish's view on this from yeah. an equity perspective because, look, there's been nowhere really to hide, right? I mean, unless you've been holding cash, but, but mm. you know, it's been, it's been a really broad sell-off, I mean, a, apart from some of the commodity plays and so forth and some of the financials mm. as well, but, but um it's been pretty indiscriminate and uh, any risk asset as you know, they've all sold off and, and, you know, crypto is like the sort of amplified high vol risk assets. So it's obviously sold off. Quite yeah. <laughs> if, if I could chip in on the, the, the cryptos in that, you know, I'm a financials person by, by history um, to some extent. And, and look, I, I just wanted to point out that, that they, they sort of exist outside the regulatory net at the moment. I mean, we have tax authorities, securities regulation authorities, anti-money laundering authorities, and prudential supervisors, none of whom are involved in this market. But if they're going to play the role that the people who are, are, are bullish on them are going to think they're going to play, all of those authorities are going to have to get a really hard look at them and get, get, get into them. And it hasn't happened yet in any jurisdiction, really. Mm. And I just, I just point out there's been one or two instances where regulators have had a little bit of a, a faint in their direction. I, I think if you look back at the big pullbacks that that, co that um, cryptos had 
in the last five years. Two of them were caused by the Chinese regulators going, we're not going to accept this anymore. And, and, and Bitcoin just halved like within two weeks. Right. That's just one regulator making yeah. one statement. Uh, you know, whereas we've got all these regulators across all these major jurisdictions who are all gradually, if, if this takes off, going to pull it within their net. So I think there's a long journey to go through before these things become stable investments, if I could put it that way. Um, and I, I think the day where a, a major international government accepts Bitcoin to pay your tax bill will be a very strange day. <laughs> Countries like to control their own currency and one of the ways they control it is the only way you can pay your tax is, is in our own currency. If you don't pay your tax, we send some people around and they put you in jail, right? It's a, it's a, it's a very nice <laughs> way of supporting your currency. And I don't see Bitcoin having that kind of coercive power anytime soon. Um, so uh, anyway, I, I'm watching with interest, but I feel like we're at the beginning of a very long journey at the, at the very least. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Look, um it's been a great discussion. I know I'm sort of aware we're, we're pushing towards our time now and yeah. I just thank you both for what's been a, a really great discussion, some very insightful points there. So just remains for me to thank Lucas Bay from Lonsec and Hamish Fitzsimons from Alliance Bernstein for taking part in our podcast. And lastly, a, a reminder that we do have some upcoming IMAP events the week beginning Monday, 23rd of May, we have a webinar series which is entitled Transforming Advice into Wealth Management. Three one-hour sessions at noon on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You can find more about those on our website. And also registration now open for our advisor conferences which are being held mid-June in Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne. And registration is open for those which we have called Advice in Action. Again, you can find more on our website. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you.